we continue to work our way through this short but profound letter. I, there are 25 verses, but every verse is intense. Uh, it's, it's full. There's much for us to explore. In fact, this morning, really, verses 8, 8 through 23 embody a unified thought uh, that really demand one sermon. However, we don't have an hour and a half. I'm well aware of that. So therefore, we're going to just take this in two parts uh, and look at verses 8 through 13, or 8 through 16 this week, and then 17 through 23 next week. What we have here is a letter before us that is written to a people who have been infiltrated by those who are teaching a different gospel. They're perverting the grace of God and denying Jesus. Yet they are in their midst. Uh, They have crept in, as verse 4 tells us, in Jude. So we know that the church is already in a state of infiltration with those who are enemies. They are people that must have looked like them uh, and were most probably teachers that at one time were faithful or were Uh, teaching what was right, but now they have shown themselves to be what we call apostate, which is a deep and profound word in itself, which we will focus on further this morning. But this book starts with grace and ends with grace, and in between it gives us the hard reality that we have to be on guard, that we have to persevere in the faith. We have to contend for the faith. Let me be clear about something theologically. We understand that when God saves someone by his eternal decree, they don't lose that status before the Lord. There is no such thing in actuality of losing one's salvation when they're really saved, when they're really one of God's chosen. No question. Scripture's clear about this. The doctrine of election speaks of this. But there's also a doctrine that we sometimes forget. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in faith and in holiness. The proof of our standing before God is that he grants us strength to persevere. The lack of perseverance shows one's true state. Now, when I say that, I don't mean you don't take a couple steps back, several forward, the ongoing struggles of the Christian life. It's not what we're speaking of. We're speaking of what we will see today embodied in these apostate teachers. Unless any of us think that we are exempt from this, we need to analyze closely. These were people who were not readily identifiable. It's true. Jude rips the mask off, and we see it in all its ugliness, and it's profound, these verses but they snuck in. They weren't noticed. They looked like everybody else for a time. We have to be sober-minded when we consider this topic of apostasy. Look at verse 8. Follow with me as I read verses 8 through 16 of Jude's letter. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, 
that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let us pray. Father, it is clear that you have moved the apostle to write profound words, words that are sobering. And initially, in reading them, certainly not uplifting in our, they don't make us feel good, Lord, but they give us the truth. And we thank you for this. We thank you for shooting straight with us, as it were. Lord, giving us clear warning how we might preserve, how we might move forward in faith, that we might contend for the faith. Lord, guard us and protect us. Give us clear understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been a Christian for any time, you probably know of at least one person who you were just sure was a believer. Everything about what you did with them, what you spoke to them about, the fellowship you had, what you observed, pointed to the fact that this person must be born again. There's something supernatural working in their lives. Yet, at some point, they turn from it. When I was, in ten, I was in ninth grade, there was a student who was in tenth grade, and ninth grade, for me, was a very pivotal year. I trusted Christ. I'd heard the gospel message many times. I wasn't going to a church regularly, except for with my father and I, who would go to a, the Catholic church every week, and then started going to a, another church, a Bible church in the evening, where I would clearly hear the gospel message, and I would hear it in other forms, other ways. I'd hear the message, and it always resonated with me. Yes, Christ, for me, salvation is in Christ. Yes, I, I totally grasped that. But I didn't want to look uncool in front of my friends. I really wanted to maintain the friends and the people I was hanging around with as opposed to telling them I was a Christian, having to not partake of certain activities they were doing or hang with them when they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. So this 10th grade student, who was a year older than me, was a strong believer. Uh, he would preach and teach to everybody that came across his path. And he sort of took me under his wing when he saw that I professed Christ and that I was going to the same church he was going to in the evenings. So he took an interest in me, and he just got me fired up for the Lord. I would start talking about the Lord with, uh, with him to other people in school. And I remember sitting in the seat that I used to sit with all my buddies, and uh, none of which were believers. And he would come and sit with me. And before the end of the year, he had witnessed effectively to all of them. They didn't all necessarily trust in Christ, but they all heard the message clearly, knew what he meant. And Cliff, my friend, was one of the most outspoken people for the Lord that I've ever met. Loved the Lord intensely from everything I could tell. He had a younger brother named Jason who also loved the Lord. They came from a family that sent them to our church and they were very, very interested in spiritual things. Strengthened me, gave me a voice in, in the public square. I felt confident because of his backing. Well, because of the internet, recently he got in contact with me again. I'd lost track of him. He left, he moved and left high school the next year. So I hadn't heard from him in a while, and all of a sudden I get this email from Cliff in Maryland now, working in real estate. And he wrote a bunch of different uh, things to catch me up on what was happening. Very general. I couldn't tell anything spiritual about it. Sounded like things were doing, going well, and he did mention God a few times as blessing him. So I wrote back more particularly. I said, Cliff, and I was just so grateful for what he had done in my life, how is your walk with the Lord? Where are you now? What church are you serving in? I figured he'd at least be a leader somewhere. He was just that kind of personality. And this is only a few weeks ago. Listen to the letter that he wrote back to me. What about me, bro, you ask? And Jason, my brother, my walk with Christ? Well, you better call me and block out some time in the day, in the day planner for that one. I'm doing excellent. Got a great thing going, and God is truly blessing us. 
About 13 years ago, and I'm surprised that you haven't heard, I started studying Islam and have been a Muslim for nine years now. As a matter of fact, I went to Hajj, which is the word for Mecca, two years ago. What an eye-opener. What a great experience that was. Jason, after several years of debates and emotional exhaust, emotionally exhausting conversations, became Muslim three years ago and is married to, a solid, married to a solid Muslim girl and went to Hajj just this year. He's still bald. Tone, are you there? Tone, yeah. It's all true, and I would love to talk more about this with you later. I hope you're still, you'll still write back. It is great to hear from you again, Cliff. I did write back. But I was heartbroken, disheartened. God clearly used this individual in my life. To some degree, he used him in my life uh, to a degree. Maybe I'm here, you know, humanly speaking, partially because of the courage he gave me for the faith I thought he believed in, and everything pointed to it. You know, no one in the church is exempt from the real possibility of not persevering because of the influence of apostasy and apostate teachers. This passage is about that kind of influence. That This passage is a sober reminder to us that perseverance is the actual evidence of our vitality in Christ. Jude puts every generation of God's people on notice in this passage, in this book. On notice of the ease with which Christians and the Christian church embrace killing error. In vivid detail, he tells us, Jude does, how to identify apostasy and apostate teachers. First of all, you may ask, what does the word apostasy mean? It's not something we use often today. In the English word, apostasy actually is derived from the Greek word apostasia, which is the word that comes in Thessalonians, where Thessalonians speaks for the day that will not come unless the rebellion comes first or the falling away. Apostasia means falling away. It's a general term for falling away. Uh, the Greek word in particular has other nuances, a defection, a renunciation, to depart. That's what apostasy means. One uh, author says it is a deliberate act of repudiation. Uh, believe one thing, but now repudiate it. And there's a big difference between theological error, heresy, and apostasy. They can lead to one another, at least in human terms, but theological error is what all of us have. None of us is perfectly pure theologically. We all have differing degrees of error because of our humanness. That's one level. We all deal with that level at some degree. You're dealing with this morning by virtue of me talking to you. Then there's heresy, and heresy can lead one, can lead one away from Christ or to a false thinking, and there's different levels within that camp. But the idea is people genuinely believe it. They're wrong, but they genuinely believe it. Think of false religions in this life. Then there's apostasy, a whole other category in the New Testament where you have those, and in the Old Testament, those who are part of the covenant community, as it seems, part of professing believers, but not just walk away from it, quit going to church, but they now repudiate it, and they go on the attack against it. Apostasy is the most serious of all departures. That's what Jude is referring to. Webster's Dictionary from 1828 says, it is an abandonment of what one has professed, a total desertion, or departure from one's faith and religion. Who is apostate? An apostate person is someone who's professed to be a believer in Christ and Christianity, but now has turned from the faith and now repudiates the faith. To apostatize means to forsake the principles of the Christian faith one has professed. Now you say, why does it matter? Listen, it matters profoundly. It's profoundly important for us to understand 
Jude is a call to contend for and persevere in the faith. As soon as we start thinking, boy, that's heavy what he's saying. It doesn't apply to us today. That's when we need to be warned. Think again. Think again. Each believer must know Christ better and know his enemies as well. Doctrine matters. That's why this matters. We will be sobered when we see the sins and the indictments of the apostates. So let's work to unpack these verses so that we might see better how it does matter. Let's unpack these nine verses together, and you will notice right away in verses 8 through 16, it says they, them, they, them, constantly, 14 times referring to they or them. Who are they referring to? Who is Jude referring to? Look at verse 4 to be reminded. Certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. So they're people who have crept into the church. They appear to be part of the church, but in effect, they have perverted the grace of God by adding sensuality. In other words, you can do whatever, and God's not going to judge you for it. Go ahead, sin. It doesn't matter. And then also, they essentially deny Christ. They do a lot of God speak, but not much on Jesus himself. That is what leads us into verse 8. After a brief excursus, an example of different ones who uh, went against God's authority. Now in verse 8, we have the sins of the apostates, the sins of the apostate teachers. Let's look at them together, starting at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Yet in like manner these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, or speak evil. Let's consider those for a moment. They speak evil first. Uh, And what there is here in verse 9, what is this talking about? The archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. I've not read that one. This is a reference to an extra biblical work called the Assumption of Moses. Now you may recall Moses dies on a mountain alone. And there's no one immediately there to bury him. This is a very important part of the Jewish uh, customs, especially in those days, to take that body of that patriarch or whoever it is and bury them in a special way. Well, no one's there. So there's a spiritual battle that apparently happens that Jude gives some authenticity to that's written of in this work called The Assumption of Moses. And something like this happens. The devil comes, and he wants to uh, battle for the body of Moses. What that really means, hard to say. Make it an idol to the people somehow, or who knows what he was going to do with Moses' body. But Michael the archangel, who's no lightweight, An archangel, probably second only to Lucifer before Lucifer, the devil, was cast out of heaven. Doesn't get in the face of Satan. Rather, recognizes, recognizes rank, recognizes authority and power and and refers to the Father's authority in getting rid of Satan. He doesn't go up to himself and say, Satan, I rebuke you. He says, Satan, the Lord rebukes you. Michael, the same one in Revelation 12, was used of God to cast out Satan in the first place. He does not speak blasphemously against the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? Usually this is an angelic reference to those who God has placed in the angelic uh, realm as authorities. But it could mean dignitaries. It could mean those who are in authority over us. God has a certain level of authority. The apostate teachers speak against God's authority. They speak evil. They blaspheme those who God has placed in positions of authority. Michael wouldn't even do that, even with Satan. But these apostate teachers will. They further blaspheme all that they do not understand in verse 10. They are just scoffers. They mock. They constantly look to take things down. And brothers and sisters, this view of the apostates 
does caution us as to how we speak about others. Now, granted, we're not apostate when we speak disrespectfully. I don't want us to be afraid of that. At the same time, understand its sinfulness. Understand that the, the mode that can become in our lives. I remember when I was a child, I was starting to go to church, and the one big difference I noticed between my Catholic upbringing and going to a Protestant church was the sermons were really long in the Protestant church. 45 minutes. I could not believe the guy was still talking that long. And I remember complaining in Sunday school once, and an elder was teaching the Sunday school class, and he heard me complaining about the pastor who was preaching that long. And he said with real sternness, I knew the man loved me, but he said, Tony, do you understand that God has appointed him to give us his word? And that's all he said. He just went on to class, and it dawned on me that God has placed certain authorities. And we could think of it in terms of the church, but think of it in terms of your own family, children with your parents. Do you recognize the authorities that God has placed in your life? And it's not okay it's not okay to affront them because you're not affronting your mom or your dad. You're affronting God. That's who you're affronting. And it's true of all the authorities. Think of government officials. There are many that probably you don't like. But it's not okay when I hear children say, I hate so-and-so, talking about a politician. We ought to be rebuked if our children talk that way because God has placed authority over us that we must honor that and not speak evilly against it. They defile the flesh is something else that, we're spo- that is spoken of here. Look at verse 12 and fif- through 15. These are blemishes on your love feast, and they feast with you without fear. So they're defiling the flesh in some way, but what does this mean? Jude doesn't give us the whole picture. There are blemishes on your love feast. Well, we know the love feast were times that they had formal gatherings of the church. Communion was often celebrated. And apparently they are there, and they are there without fear, meaning they had no respect or reverence about being in attendance at these love feasts. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter, because we have an instance here where there's, the Bible gives a commentary on itself. 2 Peter chapter 2, just a few pages back. There is an incredible parallel between 2 Peter and Jude, which shows you that this problem was throughout the church. Look at verse 10, 2 Peter 2, verse 10. Listen to how similar this sounds, and it gives us insight to what was happening at these love feasts, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, which sounds very familiar. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Again, a reference to speaking of God's created authorities or dignitaries. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Reference to Michael. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Look at verse 13 in the parallel now with Jude 12. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So we get a picture that what was going on these love feasts, it was a pickup time. All the, the churches there, and they were going through, and they were picking people up. It was like a dating service in their mind. At least that's part of what's happening. Full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved 
2 Peter 2, 10 through 17 directly parallels Jude and gives us further insight on what was happening. They were defiling the flesh by taking love feasts, meetings of the church, and turning them into opportunities to fulfill their sin. They also reject authority. Verse 16, or verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So they speak evil, they defile the flesh, but at the heart of it is their rejection of authority. First of all, look at verse 8. They rely on their dreams. And this is important. The word dreams here is not referring to the kind of dream that Daniel had or Jacob or people of God, the prophets of God had dreams that gave them revelation. No, these are dreams that are conjurings of their own mind. They rely on the conjurings of their own mind, that which they make up as authority, their own ideas, their own doctrines. That's what they rely upon, not on God's doctrine, not on his word, but they rely on their dreams. And what do they do? They defile the flesh when that's their authority, and they reject authority. They reject authority by relying on their own wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. And then they blaspheme the glorious ones. Just the picture of Michael, who even Michael has respect for at some level, Satan's power by invoking the Lord. The apostate has no respect for God's created order, no respect for his rank of authority. The example of Cain and his rebellion against God, Korah and his rebellion against God, all... uh, all pictures of rebelling against God's appointed authority. Jude 16, the last verse, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We need to be leery of rebellious hearts in our own lives when we just for the sake of rebellion always have to question or criticize authority in our own hearts as it wells up. But we ought to also be leery of those who are rebels. I don't mean being original. It would be wonderful if more people were original. I don't call that being a rebel. But a rebel, always complaining about who's in authority, no matter what organization it is, whether it's the school, the church, the government, uh, the, the soccer club, you name it, they're always criticizing whoever's leading it. Be very leery because that's the spirit, the spirit that at least leads to apostasy. Do we embrace the authority that God has placed in our lives or we rail against it constantly? That's the question. That's their sin. They reject authority. They defile the flesh. They speak evil. What is their indictment? What will come of them? Look at verse 11. Woe to them! Woe to them, it says. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. That's a sermon on its own because those are three full examples from the Old Testament. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. But then look at verses 14 through 15. It was also about these that Enoch, another reference to uh, an extra-biblical source. Uh, But there's a portion in it that clearly must be true because Jude is taking from it and now it's scripturating it. That is putting it into a book that is the Word of God. So at least this portion we can rely upon. The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds. So there's going to be a judgment that comes. Woe to them, judgment is coming in verse 11. Then what happens for the rest of this portion of Scripture? We see the counterparts of these apostates in history, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and then their counterparts in nature. Look with me. Verse 11, Cain, a reference to Cain. You all remember Cain. If you don't, Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, 
And he was supposed to bring an offering to the Lord. He brings not his first fruits. He brings an unworthy offering to the Lord, disrespecting God, saying that God's standard didn't matter. And when God disciplines Cain, instead of receiving his discipline, he, out of malice towards God, kills his brother, whose offering God received. It's malice towards God that Cain has. It's anger towards God that he lives out with. Apostates love themselves and act with malice towards the true and living God. Balaam, what about Balaam? We know him because a donkey talked to him. But he's a mysterious figure, to say the least. He was a prophet of some sort because God gave him some ability to predict the future, at least that portion of a prophet's role he was able to fulfill at some level. But he was a prophet for hire. It was whoever could pay the most is who Balaam would prophesy for. He was motivated by greed. And then he was also used to sway the Israelites to align with the Midianites and then led many of the men in Israel to commit adultery with the Midianite women. He caused them to to mix in a way that God had not wanted them to mix faiths. Balaam was used for that purpose, using his prophetic gift to lead Israel astray, to convince them that they could do what they wanted to do without impunity or with impunity. Apostates are false prophets, greedy for worldly gain, always, always, and here's the key, like Balaam, minimizing the seriousness of sin. Whenever you hear someone say, we're all sinners and it's okay, we, God says forgive, red flags ought to go up. Minimizing sin is a surefire indicator of apostasy. Now, obviously we say we're all sinners in need of God's grace and we go to the gospel and see the answer to that. But when you just stop, we're all sinners and it's okay, that's where we see an indication of Balaam's sin. Apostates are false prophets, greedy for worldly gain, will say just about anything to get a crowd. Korah, remember that situation, poor Moses. Anyone who's been in leadership has got to feel for Moses. Here's Moses, didn't want to be a leader, gets called into leadership, can't even speak really very well. So kind of a cruel joke in some senses. He's got to be the leader of this great nation, and he can't speak. So he's frustrated enough, and God uses this broken vessel, if you will, to lead God's people. That's typically how he works, isn't it? But here's Moses. He's got all sorts of stress. And then he hears that Korah's got 250 people and wants to come kill him. Oh, God, why are you doing this, Moses says. Why him? And what did Korah do? He got 250 leaders of the community together and said, let's get rid of Moses. I don't like what he's doing with this. Look what he's done. Never mind the Red Sea, Korah. Never mind all the things he had witnessed. I don't like where we are today. Let's go and get him. And 250 people affront him. Now, we know what happens. Korah's rebellion's put down and they're killed. But that spirit of Korah is in the heart of the apostate, the one who wants to rail against God's authority and his leaders. They're antagonists to the 10th degree. They're destroyers, first in line to run the leader out. Their existence is for nothing other than destruction. That's what they're there for. Cain, Balaam, Korah, these are the historical counterparts of the modern-day apostates. What about their counterparts in nature? Look at verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What a beautiful picture. In fact, these whole three verses are just picturesque and really give us a great picture of what is at the heart of the apostate. First, an unreasoning animal. Maybe you've heard the well and oft-used illustration for sin, but it's good. Uh, That shows us what an unreasoning animal does. You know that Eskimos, they say, when they want to kill a wolf, if they have a wolf problem, they'll get a knife and they'll dip it in blood and they'll freeze it. And then they'll stick it in the snow or in the ice 
and then wolves or a wolf will come and start licking the blood off that knife. And like an unreasoning sort that a wolf is, as they lick that thing, they start to cut themselves with the knife, but they don't recognize the difference between the blood on the knife and the blood that's actually coming from their throat and their tongue, and they eat it until they die. What a picture of an unreasoning animal. That's what the apostate is like, who lives based on their fleshly desire, working it, working it, living it, and ultimately destroying themselves with it. Like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. But then look at verse 12. These are blemishes on your love feasts. The feasts, uh, they feast with you without, without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. What does that mean? What is a waterless cloud? Well, there, there isn't one. That's the point. But in agrarian society, imagine if you had this drought, and there was often drought in this part of the country. And so when the clouds were coming without meteorologists and so forth and Doppler radar, they would see in the distance the clouds are coming. And they would literally celebrate that this cloud's coming. Why? Because it was going to water their ground. The cloud gave an evidence of something it was going to do, water the earth, and they needed it. But imagine if that cloud comes, that cloud comes, and it goes, and it never drops any water. It's waterless in their minds, in their perspective. What a cruel joke to look like it's going to give you something, but literally offers you no rain, no nourishment. That's the apostate teacher. A waterless cloud that moves along, looks promising, but yields nothing. What other picture? Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. What does that mean? Well, there's, it's one thing to be a barren tree. It's another thing to be uprooted. My mother-in-law has an apricot tree that she had for a couple decades that never bore fruit. There was always kind of a little mocking, a gentle mocking that went on about this apricot tree that would never bear fruit. Well, about the year that we got married, it was Sherry's 25th anniversary and the same year that we got married, if I remember correctly, and this thing just busted loose with apricots after 25 years uh, of being barren, essentially. It just busted loose with apricots. And it was barren, but there was always the hope that it might produce. It was a fruit tree. Maybe it would. It's barren, right? It's a possibility. But if you tear that tree out, it has no possibility. And that's an apostate teacher. They don't even have the possibility of bearing fruit. It's not like a tree that might. That tree is uprooted and pulled out twice dead. Not just barren, but uprooted also. Tony, these are hard words you're saying here. 25 minutes, this is certainly not seeker-friendly. What are you doing? Jude did it. I didn't do it. I'm just telling you what Jude said. Right? Is this what the Word of God says? Amen? Sure, I'd like to feel better some days too, but this is the fact. This is the reality. And we better hear it because it's serious. Jude doesn't say all this in these short 25 verses with an idea that it's not, a re- or it's not relevant. It's extremely relevant. That's why we look at it. Fruitless trees, waterless clouds, unreasoning animals, wild waves of the sea. Now, what is that about? Well, when antiquity, when you're ready to set sail, you liked a steady wind coming from some direction, as opposed to the kind that would cause a rocking of the sea. And a rocking of the sea was very difficult to negotiate, very difficult to navigate. And what would happen is it would do this, foam would settle out, that shake it up. And you, you see this today. You'll see foam develop. It's because the water is moving backward and forward instead of one direction. So it offers you no ability to navigate. It doesn't give you the help to go where you're going. And the foam tells you that's the kind of sea. So when the seaman would go to the sea and he'd see that foam, he'd realize what kind of sea it is today. It'd be tough to fish today. It'd be tough to, to sail to this or that island, to go up the coast today. All it leaves is foam. Not good for sailing. That's the apostate teacher. You can just see you're going nowhere with this person, with this individual. 
because it will give you nothing to move forward with in reality. Finally, wandering stars. You and I know them as shooting stars. In antiquity, they saw them as well, and they're just describing what they see. They look like they're wandering, all these bright luminaries, and there's this one that's shining bright, and it's shooting through the sky, and then it burns out. For a moment, it looks like it has something. It's going to have some eternal significance like all the other luminaries, but not this one. It burns out. Burns out forever into utter darkness. That is the apostate teacher. For a time, they may be popular. For a time, they may strike some cultural nerve that gains hordes of people, but they burn out because their message is not eternal. It's not based on that which is eternal. It will fade as the flowers and the grass do. All our outward show, all of them are outward shows with no inward reality. As Jesus said, whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside, but if you bust them open, they smell with dead men's bones. That's the warning of Jude to us. This is the reality of it. And if we're for a moment thinking this is too heavy for today, tone it down. Warning. It's not. It's still for today. Two things I would like to leave you with, our caution and our response. Next week we're going to look at perseverance in more depth, verses 17 through 23. But I want to leave you with this as it relates to what we've just read. First, our caution. Our caution is that we are, brothers and sisters, to persevere. That's the mark of our salvation. I don't mean try harder to be saved. That's not what I mean. We're saved by the work of Christ in the cross, and he gives us faith to believe in, and we're saved by that. Now we work out our salvation by responding to what God has done in perseverance in the faith and in holiness. Those things are what give us assurance of our salvation. Perseverance is serious. It's real. It's Jude's ultimate underlying motive to have the people of God persevere. He starts in verse 1 and verse 2 calling them the called ones, beloved ones, the kept ones. He assures them of their security in God. And then in verse 24 and 25, to him who is able to keep you, he reminds us, we're kept by God. So grace is all apparent. But he reminds us that life will present many trials. And there will be those who come to try to devour you, like it says in the book of Acts, devour you like wolves. Recognize that your persevering will show the reality of your salvation. Sometimes you just persevere. That's what you do in the face of the trials that we face. Apostasy does not happen overnight, little by little, step by step, nibble by nibble. We know this because these people were not even noticed and all of a sudden they were among them. Jude puts every generation of God's people on notice with the ease with which Christians and the Christian church embrace killing error. That's the caution. What about a response to apostate teachers? Let the word of God give us that response. Hear these scriptures. You, you need not turn there, but listen to them. Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Second Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Avoid them. Keep away from. Titus, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Second John, everyone who, does, who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Avoid them. Keep from them. 
Have nothing more to do with them. Do not receive them. It is clear that once an apostate false teacher is uncovered, fellowship is to cease. Fellowship is to cease. Corrupt teaching and corrupt doctrine leads to a corrupt view of life. A corrupt view of life leads to corrupt living. What you believe, what you think has consequences, and it will affect your life. It will change who you are and what you do. I close with this simple statement. Doctrine, brothers and sisters, matters. What are you passionate about? Is it sports, politics, your children, your job, golf, scrapbooking, cooking, hunting? What is it that you're passionate about that you think about often in your idle time? You can't understand why someone else, why can't someone else like computers like I do? I can't understand this. Why, why, why don't people like golf? Everyone ought to like golf, you think. I somewhat agree, but at any rate, everyone, it's a, a nice walk ruined is what golf is. Why is it that everyone doesn't feel this passionately about it as I do? And we all have something we can fill in the blank. We know it's not in the Bible. We just don't understand why someone wouldn't like this like we do. But doctrine doesn't fall in that category. I remember when I was starting to get more interested in what the Bible said, and the response I got from those in the church, which seems okay in the outset, but isn't when you think about it, he must, he's going to be a pastor. He's going to be a missionary because he has a passion for doctrine. That is not just for pastors. Everyone's supposed to have a passion for doctrine. It is how we come to love Christ better. It's not just for pastors. And so if you're here thinking, well, wait a minute, hold on, I'm a little kid. I don't have time for doctrine. It's for you, children. Because whatever sphere God brings you in, and I guarantee the one you're in now, you can utilize a better understanding of who your Savior Jesus is whether to share Christ with others or defend against those who say Christ is not who he says he is. And you will meet those people, children. So it's for you. You may say, I'm just a simple guy. I work hard. I'm faithful to my family. I give some money to the church. Don't bother me with doctrine. I'd say it's your calling. It's your calling to know Christ better and to then share him with the world, starting with your family. You must know doctrine. There's no choice. You are a theologian. You think something about God, so you're a theologian. It's just whether it's right or wrong. And that then guides the rest of your life. I'm just a housewife. I have a pile of diapers to deal with, a house to clean up, kids to transport. I don't have time for doctrine. You can spend no better time than in doctrine. A wrong view of God will lead to a wrong view of life. A wrong view of life will lead to wrong living. And that's one of the devil's greatest schemes. I'll leave with just one simple, very simple application. I can give you many, but I'm going to give you one that I'm going to hold you to, to doing. I'll speak first to fathers. Fathers, if you don't have a system to catechize your children, start now. I'm not going to give you a guilt trip for not doing it. Many didn't even know what that meant. What does catechize mean? But start now. We have children, books and children's catechism that you can have. and uh, We'll give them to you. And then we have the regular catechism, which used to be the children's catechism. And we even provide opportunities where the elders and volunteers help catechize our children Sunday nights. But it starts in the home. Fathers oversee this. Now, here's the beauty of it. It's not just to do this as, as giving an edict, because your wife will probably be the one who does the day-to-day work with children on this. The beauty is when you start going over the questions with your children, what you're deficient in, you start picking up. And even the children's catechism gives you just powerful realities about God that you can start knowing now if you don't know them. And you can start to become indoctrinated in a way that doesn't take more time than you should be spending anyways. 
and then your wives will be going through it, and they come to understand that doctrine as well, and it's powerful. How many have ever sat, without showing your hands, will go through with kids memorizing verses or memorizing catechism questions, and you start knowing the answers to them yourself? Your child probably knows them better than you. You know how that works. But you'll start to learn them. And that simple thing, if you would just do that, doctrine would start to matter more, and you'd be amazed when you hear your child tell you what a covenant is. Amazed when you hear your child tell you what is the meaning annexed to the fifth commandment. It'll amaze you when he tells you what God's word is, what the chief end of man is. It'll amaze you when he tells you what sin is. If you don't know it, I'm not beating you up. I'm saying we've got a tool for learning it. And the scripture goes with every one of those questions and answers. It's not too late to start that. And if you can imagine, we've actually devised most of the programs of the church around such things, training in these areas. For those who don't have children, you say, that doesn't apply to me. Sunday nights, we go through the Westminster Confession. We have other doctrinal opportunities. We have a book table. We have all sorts of opportunities for discussion among the brethren and the cistern. Come and speak and talk about what it is that makes our God great, which is given to us in the revelation of Scripture. And it's this simple. Doctrine is what this table represents, what the Word says. Christ dies for us and gives us eternal life. And this is all that which orbits that truth. And we need to learn it and know it so we can know him better. Doctrine matters. I close with the words of Timothy, uh, to Paul to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's happening all over the place. Stave it off by falling in love with doctrine yourself, the people of God, so that we might unmask apostasy when it shows and that glory might come to our Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality that 